You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Grand Canyon University makes earning your degree possible with over 130 academic programs for traditional campus students with more than 80 bachelor's programs offered online. GCU provides you with the personal support you need from complimentary unofficial transcript evaluations within 24 business hours to scholarships, academic support, and your GCU graduation team led by your own university counselor. Find your purpose at GCU. Private. Christian. Affordable. Visit gcu.edu. As a longtime foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China, where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts. living in the San Francisco Bay Area. We often brag about our beautiful, usually sunny skies. But on the other hand, we're wary of the ground beneath our feet. Weaving like a baseball stitch through the rolling San Francisco hills, the vineyards, and the artichoke fields is the boundary where the North American plate greets the Pacific plate. With less than salubrious consequences. I mean, whether it's the San Andreas Fault or the Hayward Fault... You may say it's our fault for living in earthquake country. We're all too aware that these plates can slip at any time and cause a trivial tremor or a sustained shaking. Of course, we love the wine and the fresh artichoke dip, so we stay here. But we're always on the lookout for ways to give advance notice of impending earthquakes. Now, often when there's a quake, even a small one, someone will report that their pet dog or cat, and it's usually the cats, were acting bizarrely before it hit that after the house rattled and they straightened the books that had careened off their shelf, they remembered their cat. Fluffy had been acting weird just moments before. Weirder than usual, zipping around the house like mad. Could Fluffy have sensed that the Pacific plate was about to slip? If so, I'm going to run right out and get a couple of white Persian kittens. But hold that thought and your trip to the pet store. The mysterious behavior of Fluffy is key to this episode of Skeptic Check, our monthly look at critical thinking on big picture science. And we'll find out more about the cat in a moment. But consider the big picture. The world is filled with curious phenomena, seemingly amazing occurrences. The trick and the fun is working out what's cause and what's effect. You're thinking about a friend, the phone rings, and it's she. Your team wins the pennant just on the day you're wearing your lucky hat. But are these events directly connected or just merely coincidence? And things get really interesting when biological systems are involved. You eat a hamburger and you get a stomachache three days later. Related events? Not easy to tell because biology is complex. Biological claims can be dubious. And so in this Skeptic Check, we bring you Dubiology. I'm Molly Bentley. I'm Seth Shostak. Okay, cats and earthquakes, what's the bottom feline? Fluffy does act strangely sometimes. Is she sensing geologic activity beneath her paws? Seth headed over to Seismology Central, the United States Geological Survey, the USGS. The headquarters are in Menlo Park, California. And he went there to speak with seismologist Andy Michael. Andy, can cats really predict earthquakes? No, I really don't think there's anything to that. Um, We hear a lot about cats and dogs, but I think one of the wisest comments I ever heard on this was from actually a college reporter who said, growing up in the Bay Area, he said, after every earthquake, you'd hear about one or two dogs that had predicted it. And he always wondered, why not all the dogs? I mean, there's, you know, a million dogs in the Bay Area. How come it's only a few each time? 
I think there's a number of things going on. One is dogs and cats sort of act strangely a fair bit of the time. I, I know our cats do that. And then when something happens like an earthquake, there's some psychological focusing to really focus on something that happened just before the earthquake or maybe even a few days earlier. But, but, but that sounds like something called confirmation bias. In other words, I mean, I'm, I'm sure if you have a cat, I don't have a cat, but if I had a cat, it might behave strangely every now and again. And if it behaves strangely, and then there was an earthquake, I, I might say, you see, that cat knew that the earthquake was coming. Yeah, I think there's a lot of exactly that going on. People are looking for some way to control the life around them, and so that's a very you know, appealing idea that maybe next time they'd have some warning. Personally, when our animals behave strangely, we almost always discover that there was another animal outside the house, and that's really what they're reacting to. And that's a big problem with studying animals, is they respond to a lot of stimuli. Do you get this question often? Because you know, this idea that cats and other animals can predict earthquakes, that's, that's not a modern idea, right? No, it's actually been around for a long time, and we, we do get the question often. The other thing we often find out is that after earthquakes around the world, we'll get reports of something strange that happened, and it falls into one of two categories. Either it's something that actually happens a lot, like there was a annual frog migration in China that was one year attributed to the Wenchuan earthquake coming next. But then people who really understood the frogs said, no, actually, the frogs do that every year. Okay. But couldn't you argue that there, there's maybe a physical mechanism here? I mean, it isn't just that the cats are somehow tuned into tectonic activity. Maybe they can hear low-frequency rumble that, that we don't hear, and, and maybe that's what's setting them off. I mean, it, that doesn't sound to me completely implausible. Well, it's actually very interesting. Of course, cats and dogs hear high frequencies much better than we do, but they don't actually hear low frequencies better than we do. They may be a little more sensitive to low-level vibrations. And what sometimes does happen is a cat or a dog might feel the faster-moving but weaker P wave that comes from the earthquake and gets to our houses before we feel it. And then what we may feel is the slower-moving and later-arriving and stronger S wave. So the cat and the dog is actually not predicting the earthquake. They're just feeling the earthquake that already happened before we feel it. Now, the P wave differs from the S wave how? Well, P wave is a compressional wave. It's like a sound wave, but it travels through the rocks. The S waves shear the rocks back and forth. They're a type of wave that, for instance, can't happen in the atmosphere or in water, in a liquid or a gas. Um, but they carry most of the energy, and so that's mostly what we feel. They also tend to travel slower, and I think that's an important lesson. First, the earthquake happens, and then different types of waves arrive at different speeds. And so it's not just a simple thing that if they feel the first wave, they're actually predicting the earthquake. But, well, what's the difference in speed? I mean, if an earthquake took place, say, uh, 10 miles from here, uh, how much difference in time would there be between the arrival of the P wave and the S wave? Um, at a distance of 10 miles, it's not much, probably just about a couple of seconds. As you get up to 50 or 60 miles away, the, the difference can get up to 20 or 30 seconds. And that would be long enough for you to see your cat start running around the house. And I've actually seen videos like that before you see the shaking starting. That sort of suggests that maybe they're not predicting any earthquakes. They're just experiencing the earthquakes with a little bit of uh, lead time. Right. I think that's exactly right. They're not predicting, but they may be more sensitive to the beginning of the earthquake than we are. Okay, so maybe they give you enough time to get under a table or out of the house, or maybe you shouldn't get out of the house, whatever you're supposed to do if you live far away from the epicenter of the earthquake. Well, you have to decide what you're going to do every time your cat starts running through the house. I mean, I could spend a lot of time under a table if I was doing that. <laughs> okay, well, finally then, 
Andy, what is the status of earthquake prediction? I mean, clearly we're not very good at it yet because they continue to happen and they continue to cause damage and deaths. I think for short-term earthquake prediction, there's one thing we can do well, which is take advantage of the fact that earthquakes cluster locally. After any earthquake, we have aftershocks. Some earthquakes have foreshocks. We can utilize that information, but it gives us very low-level predictions, maybe on the order of you know, a 5% probability of a larger earthquake happening. We've taken a lot of time looking at very subtle signals coming out of the Earth, and we just don't see those precursory signals. All right. Well, Andy Michael, thanks so much. You know, I live here in the Bay Area. I guess I won't buy a cat. Thanks so much for talking with me. It's great talking to you too, Seth. Andy Michael is a seismologist with the USGS in Menlo Park, California. Okay, so I'll have to call up Litter Deliver to cancel my order of a dozen felines. I guess cats just don't have the guts for seismology. But that's the animal world. But what about the plant kingdom? Now, some people who own house plants talk to them. There's no harm in that. But there are claims that it does good that talking to plants can help them grow. And more than that, that plucking plants or cutting them causes them to feel pain. Now, I'm not sure how this works because I'm pretty confident that you need nerve endings to feel pain, but it is an oft-quoted claim. Chelsea Specht is a professor in the Department of Plant and Microbial Biology at the University of California, Berkeley. Chelsea, do plants feel pain? Boy, you started that right off with the hot topic. I'm not an animal biologist. I'm a plant biologist, and so I can tell you what plants might feel, but relating that to what we perceive as pain is challenging and potentially not even that informative. Plants certainly make compounds that enable them to respond to environmental stimuli. They have to. I mean, they don't move. They can't get up and run away if something is bothering them. They need sunlight to live. They need to grow toward that sunlight. They might need water and need to grow towards those water sources or mineral sources that they can find. And so they need to be able to respond to environmental stimuli. How that translates into whether or not they feel it when you cut off one of their flowers for a nice table display for Thanksgiving is a different question. Well, well I never see them wince. There, there's no well, obvious response. you're not looking hard enough, Seth. <laughs> is that what it is? Well, I, I mean, seriously, should I feel guilty when someone harvests an ear of corn? Or for that matter, when I, when I do step outside and pluck that flower? I mean, uh, you know, am I causing harm to these you, guys? You know, it's funny. When I first started studying plant biology in graduate school, one day I walked into the kitchen in New York City where my roommate was chopping an onion and well, she was crying, but probably for different reasons. And I just was like, oh, look at her slicing that onion. She just seemed to be doing it so brutally. But that's because I was immersed in kind of thinking about plants and, and the way that they are growing and developing. I, I don't think you need to feel wince or feel pain or, or think that the plant is being hurt. When you think about things like horticulture or, or grafting, we take parts of one plant and graft it onto another, maybe a better rootstock so that that branch can grow better. So plants are capable of being cut and then regrowing from those cuttings. And one of the reasons they can do that is they leave behind stem cells in certain areas as they develop. You know, when you think about the way humans develop or animals develop, we all develop from embryogenesis. Our entire body plan is made right there as our embryo is developing. Plants continue to develop throughout their life, which can be a very long time. So they leave behind stem cells or meristematic regions where they can grow from. And in those meristematic regions, they can grow a new leaf, or if you cut it off there and put them in the water, they can grow a new set of roots. So they can grow whatever they want in different parts of their bodies. If they feel pain, then that would be kind of a disadvantage to them evolutionarily. 
but they don't have a nervous system in the sense that animals do, right? I mean, it's our nervous system that's uh, giving us the signals for pain. Right, and, and it's the way our nervous system interprets different stimuli, too. So we interpret pain so that we can flinch back and not get burned. We, we have our whole nervous system is set up to protect us from environmental stimuli. Plants do make various compounds that in animals are used as neurotransmitters, are used to transmit signals. And plants also use them to transmit signals. They have a hormonal system that they use for growth and development, and then they have a, a system of chemicals that function as, as response stimuli to help with cell-cell signaling so that they can continue to grow and develop and respond to the environment. Their system, though, again, since we develop from embryogenesis as whole body plants, we have this whole brain system that's developed as a nervous system from growth. Plants need to put this together throughout their entire life because they're constantly changing the way they're moving, growing, developing. You can cut them off and they continue to grow. So they don't have a system in the sense that we have a nervous system that's from point A through point B to point C group of synapses that transmit signals. Their system is continually developing as they grow. But Chelsea, I recall from my youth a book called The Secret Life of Plants. (laughs) I'm sure you're asked about this all the time uh, when you're sitting on the subway or whatever, uh, (laughs) suggesting that they could feel one another's pain. And indeed, it kind of portrayed plants as being really not so different from ourselves. Well, again, there's a lot of interesting, even now as we're getting more into molecular biology and genomics, we're starting to understand that a lot of the same compounds that we use in our nervous system, plants also make and use for their signaling. Uh, And this has to do with a lot of the fact that we're all sort of evolved from the same basic system. I mean, obviously, plants and animals diverged a long time ago in evolutionary history, yet we still utilize some of the same resources, genetic and genomic resources, to develop, grow, and, and live on Earth. And plants do have to signal to one another. I said they need to grow towards light. They need to know where water is. They need to know that there's another plant that's maybe like them nearby so that they don't grow in that direction and utilize the same resources. So there's a lot of environmental signaling going on that helps plants to survive. But relating that to actually feeling each other's pain or being able to cry when their owner gets killed in a car crash all the way across the country, which I think I remember in that book is what happens, is a very different thing. And that that is really humanizing, anthropomorphizing plants. I have to say, when I was a grad student, we put a bunch of speakers out on the patio of our apartment where we had some potted plants. Mm -hmm. And I arranged for a recording to start up every morning. Good morning, plants. Here are a couple of, you know, one-liners to brighten up your day. And, and I have to say all the plants died. Now, now, mind you, it may not have been talking to you, maybe the lack of water. I'm not sure what it was, but... It might have been the voice that they were hearing. Well, you know, one of the things that early on came out was that the main plant growth hormone, auxin, responds to movement. And this probably has a lot to do with plants. They grow in the breeze, and as their movement happens, auxin responds to that, and it helps plants grow into certain directions. And so that was always the thing that I heard, put your potted plant on a speaker, the movement will stimulate the auxin and the plant will actually grow and be healthier. You still have to give it light and water and and maybe a little bit of attention every once in a while, but potentially, you know, depending on the kind of music, it it could be good for the plant. Well, well, finally, Chelsea, I mean, if you catch fish, I'm told that they feel that. And and that's kind of off-putting. I don't do fishing. But harvesting Brussels sprouts, 
Can I do it without remorse? What's the bottom line? I think you can do it without remorse. In fact, I'm a big fan of Brussels sprouts, so I think you should do it as much as possible. And remember, when you're actually taking off those Brussels sprouts, you're only taking part of the plant, and you're probably stimulating the plant to grow even more Brussels sprouts. So you might be doing the plant a favor. (laughs) All right. Well, Chelsea Speck, thank you so much for talking with me, and uh, I think I'll go mow the lawn. (laughs) That's a great idea. That definitely stimulates plant growth. Chelsea Specht is a professor of plant and microbial biology at the University of California at Berkeley. Those plants have a lot of nerve. I mean, those plants don't have a lot of nerve endings. At any rate, that puts an end to the debate over whether to feel guilty the next time you grab an apple from the tree. These dubious claims about biology are curious, and frankly, they're fun, too. But the consequences of believing in them are not serious, unless you jump under a table every time your cat acts weird, end up with carpet burns on your knees... But a misunderstanding of biological science can have serious consequences. The ongoing controversy over genetically modified foods, next. Plus, the practice of deliberately exposing children to disease in order to avoid vaccines. It's Dubiology on Skeptic Check from Big Picture Science. Welcome back to Skeptic Check Dubiology. We're examining the veracity of various biological claims. Biology, of course, is the study of life, and the blueprint for life is written in our DNA. New forms emerge when DNA mutates or it's combined with other similar strands in reproduction. Genetically modified organisms, GMOs, or genetically modified foods, are in some ways not new. Through selective breeding and hybridization, people have been manipulating food crops for millennia, but the ability to do so has sped up with biotechnology, allowing scientists to create new plant species with genes for desired traits. For example, a plant that's able to produce its own insecticide. Now, for those who support GM foods, the argument is that there's no inherent difference between foods produced from genetically modified plants and those created through traditional breeding. Since all living organisms have DNA, snipping one piece of it from one organism and moving it to another just prompts that trait to be expressed in the other organism. And the ability to do this allows farmers to produce high yields to feed a hungry world without using so many harmful chemicals. Now, those who oppose GM foods say, among other things, that laboratory breeding techniques create organisms that would otherwise not occur in nature. And these have the potential to escape into non-GM field crops and produce undesirable hybrids, frankenfoods or something. Insects that feed on GM crops could develop resistance to bioengineered insecticide, for example, prompting farmers to use yet more chemicals. Opponents of GM foods have said that they're just not proven safe for consumption. Yet a 2008 review from the Royal Society of Medicine noted that GM foods have been eaten by millions of people worldwide for more than 15 years with no ill effects. A 2004 report from the National Academies of Sciences said the same. And so the discussion continues as GM technology moves forward. Ron Lindsay, the president of the nonprofit educational organization, the Center for Inquiry, says that scientific research has so far shown that GM foods are safe to eat, despite these ongoing objections. Well, there's a mix of objections. I think principally the concern is that people, many people, regard it as unnatural. It's something they think that uh, corporations have devised. It's something that you, you can't find normally. Uh, and they're concerned about safety. 
They believe that even though scientific reports so far have not revealed any danger to humans or the environment, that there could be hidden dangers. Now, this is a problem, uh, obviously, in the United States, but it seems even more so in Europe, where the uh, railing against genetically modified crops seems to have gone to heights that uh, transcend anything in this country. Why would that be? It may be a mixture of both the history of organic farming, because that actually plays into this, and also the lack of proper information about GMOs in Europe. One poll recently indicated that 60% of Europeans think that plants don't have DNA. So when they hear about a company transferring DNA from one species of plant to another, they think, oh, that corporations are injecting DNA into our food. Well, then tell me, what is a genetically modified plant? Give me an example of a crop that's genetically modified and why anybody modified it. Well, first of all, I just want to clarify, uh, don't want to be too much of a stickler, but I'll use the term genetically modified, but that in itself is misleading because almost every th all plants that we eat for food are genetically modified. They've been modified either just because of natural cross-pollination or because we've cross-bred them. What people are really concerned about is genetic engineering, and that is picking certain genes from one species and transferring them into another species. A good example is something called Bt corn, where Monsanto has taken some genetic material from a bacterium that is a natural pesticide and implanted that in corn. Okay, and they've done that simply to make raising the crop easier, or using less pesticide? What, what's their motivation? Use less pesticide. It's, it's a very effective barrier against the, especially the corn borer, which is the biggest pest for corn. So in fact, you can use it obviously with your corn and it results in greater yields because you don't have the, your corn being eaten up by this pest. Okay, so the perception is that by building in that genetic resistance to the pesticide, we've made some sort of franken food without the bolt through the jaw that although it tastes like corn, looks like corn, walks like corn, quacks like corn, it's got something different in its DNA and consequently it could be dangerous. Yes, there's this concern that somehow, even though no tests so far have indicated any harm, and the number of persons harmed by genetically engineered food so far is exactly zero, and they've been around since 1995, that somehow, at some point in time, uh, people are going to develop whatever, cancer or something down the road. There's some risk that they think is built into it just because of this novel technique. Can you give me another example of a genetically engineered food? Uh, soybeans in the United States. Ninety percent of the soybeans grown in the United States are genetically engineered. This sounds like such, uh, if you will, uh, inflicting pain on oneself. Obviously, if you can engineer crops to be resistant to diseases, to make them easier to raise or make them less dependent on artificial fertilizers or natural fertilizers and things like that, all of that sounds like it's for the common good. What is it about the body politic in advanced countries, Europe, the United States, that causes them to think that this shouldn't be done? Well, again, a lot of it is based on misinformation, just a, a failure to understand the basic scientific principles behind it. So unfortunately, there's a lot of ignorance at play. And then this, again, this is general distrust of corporations. And uh, I would also say this vague fondness for what is natural. Uh, you often find opposition to GMOs coupled with uh, support for organic farming, 
on the ground that somehow that's more natural and uh, better for us. And that in itself does not have any scientific support. I mean, there's nothing wrong with organic farming. I mean, if you prefer the taste of organic food, that's great. But it's not any more nutritious, and it's not any safer than GMOs. Now, this is remarkable, because when I go to my local super supermarket, and I look around, there's signs all over the place, organically farmed. And it's true, the apples are 20% more if they're organically farmed. And I see people buying them, and they presumably feel they're doing something good for themselves. Right. And that's because, yeah, obviously, organic now is a good selling point. In part, obviously, you know, the merchants recognize they can charge more, so it's much more profitable. And there are a lot of myths about organic food. One is that organic produce uh, never has any pesticides, or you grow the organic food without pesticides. Pesticides. That's not true. You can use pesticides. They just have to be so-called natural pesticides. Another myth is that they're never enhanced. In other words, what you get is what you see in the field. That's not true. Fruit, for example, organic fruit, especially apples, are often sprayed with ethylene, a chemical to enhance their appearance. And they can still maintain the organic label even though they have the spray. And another myth is that somehow they're more nutritious. Again, there's no scientific evidence for that. Uh, Let me ask, did you eat uh, genetically modified foods yourself? Yes. First of all, if you have anything in the United States that has uh, any soy ingredient, you're very likely consuming genetically modified organisms because, again, 90% of the soybeans in the United States are genetically engineered. In the long term, we just passed 7 billion people on this planet. This sounds like something that's going to happen sooner or later. Do you think that the resistance is going to dissipate as people realize with time that, well, this is perfectly okay? I think it will dissipate over time. As you know, years go on and people see, in fact, there is no real risk from it, I think it will happen. And in fact, it's not a panacea. I don't want to you know, portray it as something that's going to solve our food problems, but it will certainly help. And it's something that we are going to have to turn to. Ronald Lindsay, thank you so much for talking with me. Thank you. Ron Lindsay is the president of the Center for Inquiry, headquartered in Amherst, New York. Now, there's some debate over whether a virus is a living thing or not, but this little bit of DNA protected by a coat of protein has the ability to wreak havoc in biological systems, as you know. Fortunately, many of our most deadly viral diseases can be prevented with vaccines. In one of the great success stories of modern medicine, smallpox was eradicated with a global vaccination program. But a fear that vaccines could cause more harm than good persists, despite studies showing no link between them and, say, autism, the condition most visibly at the center of the controversy in recent years. So... Due to this persistent belief that vaccines are dangerous and that some disease is harmless, there are parents who refuse to give their children the MMR vaccine, that's measles, mumps, and rubella, and instead arrange to deliberately expose their children to diseases such as chickenpox. Via pox parties. The practice is met with skepticism by Yale University School of Medicine neurologist Stephen Novella. Pox parties have actually been around for a long time. The, the purpose is to expose children to chicken pox. So if one child comes down with the illness, the, their parents will host a party and invite a lot of other children over so that they can play together and get exposed. The hope is that they will catch chicken pox so that they will go through the illness as a child. So these are held in people's homes. 
Yeah, typically, uh, yes. However, in, in recent years, since about 1995, when the chickenpox vaccine has been available, there's not that many people anymore with chickenpox, so it's hard to find someone in your neighborhood that you could physically have a party with and get exposed to the disease. Okay, well, but maybe you can do this some other way. I mean, maybe you don't need a sick child, but, I mean, I've heard that you can go onto Facebook or eBay and buy a lollipop or, you know, that's been licked by a kid who's sick uh, or an item right. of clothing or something like that. I mean, is this really happening? Oh, yeah. So this is now we're in the age of social networking, right? So people can't get together in person as much anymore. But we have these vast virtual communities online. So people are using the, uh, the social networks like Facebook in order to find other children who are infected with, with chicken pox. And then instead of getting together in the home, they will, uh, the, the infected child can like a lollipop, for example, and then you can have that mailed to you so that you can expose your child to the virus in that way. But would that even work in principle? I mean, could the virus survive a trip in the mail? Sure. Uh, the the chickenpox virus can survive outside of a person and uh, can survive the trip. Probably not incredibly effective, but it, but it can work. It's actually illegal to do this. I mean, you can't deliberately mail infective, uh, you know, contaminated material in the U.S. mail. Uh, there are risks to, of course, anyone who handles that and uh, it's it's not certainly a foregone conclusion that it will arrive safely at its destination without having interacted with other people along the way. But presumably, if they did get sick, if they did get the chicken pox from licking the lollipop or wearing the sweater from some kid who had had it, uh, that would confer immunity for chicken pox. Well, once you have a full-blown infection, uh, you, you develop antibodies and you have a fairly long-term, pretty much lifetime immunity to the disease. The vaccine produces not quite as robust a response because the amount of exposure and the duration of exposure is less, but it also produces a very good antibody response that lasts for decades. So even if you do get infected once you've been vaccinated, the infection will, be much, will tend to be much less severe. Okay, now a lot of people think of chickenpox. Oh well, that's just a childhood disease. Nothing serious about it. It's just like getting a cold. But uh, that's not what I'm hearing from you. No, I mean, so most people will have a moderate infection where they will break out in a rash, and then uh, the, the virus will run its course. Once you get over the illness, you mount an immune response and fight off the illness. The va the virus actually doesn't get eradicated from your body. It becomes dormant in part of the, uh, the nervous system, the dorsal root ganglion. It goes into the, these, these sensory nerve cells and go to sleep, as it were, and they can come out years or decades later, and that's what we know of as herpes zoster. Uh, that's the virus reactivating, coming out in one nerve distribution, one dermatome, causing a rash which can be extremely painful, and that person is infectious when they are having the herpes zoster episode, and they can give chickenpox to people who haven't previously been exposed to it. But so that's the, the sort of the natural history of the disease. But in some cases, there can be complications. One type of complication is that the vesicles, the rash that you get, they break the skin and they can become infected with other viruses or bacteria. Those infections can become serious uh, sometimes and even because sepsis, you know, blood infection, and sometimes even death. Now, you mentioned that the rationale for this, that you could get chicken pox by mail, expose your kid to whatever. I mean, you know, what, what's your take on the efficacy and the safety of these pox parties? 
It's not a good idea. I mean, the rationale is that the chicken pox is safer in children than in adults, and that's really not true. Children, teenagers, adults can all have serious complications to chicken pox. You're better off just not getting the illness, especially in the age of the vaccine when the incidence has been reduced so much. You, you Chances are you can go your life now if, without getting the illness. Of course, your risk of not getting chicken pox is much better if you get vaccinated. But, but either way, you know, now that we have a usable vaccine, a very effective vaccine, chances are you're not going to get the disease. So it, it makes even less sense to go out of your way to get an infection that you could avoid and, and give you at least a bad week. And the best case scenario, and the worst case scenario, you can have a serious complication, end up in the hospital, and, and the, the ultimate worst case scenario is, is dying from the disorder. So it's just not worth it by any means. Well, you convinced me, but, but maybe we could be a bit quantitative. If, if I cause a million kids to come down with chicken pox via lollipops or whatever, how many would die in a million, roughly? Uh, well, when, when infections were at that rate, there were 10 to 15,000 uh, hospitalizations per year and several hundred deaths per year. So the death rate would be, uh, out of a million children, would be uh, in the order of hundreds. Okay, but what if I vaccinated those million kids against chickenpox? How many of them would die from the vaccine? None, none would die from the vaccine. I mean, the, the, the risk of serious uh, side effects from vaccines do run about a million to one, really at the high end of estimations. It's, it's hard to say absolutely, but no medical intervention is 100% safe. No one says that vaccines are 100% safe. There are rare reactions to the vaccine. So, and that's usually about the figure that we throw out. A serious adverse event from a vaccine, about a million to one. So the odds are a lot better for getting vaccinated than not getting vaccinated. And of course, you have to balance that against the benefit. The benefit is that you will avoid this disease. And furthermore, we we'll always point out that getting vaccinated is not just about you avoiding the disease. It's also about avoiding spreading it to other people, other people who may not be able to be vaccinated or who are not healthy or more susceptible to the disease or more likely to have a complication. So, you know, we talk about herd immunity. If enough people get vaccinated, then not only are they individually protected, but they actually prevent the disease from being spread around. And in at least one case, you know, with smallpox, completely eradicate it. It sounds to me like the vaccine is at least 100 times safer than these pox parties. Now, you know, it, these pox parties were actually a consequence of the fact that people were afraid of vaccines causing autism and, and, and other things. Is that fear, which has been discounted by scientists, is that still a, a, a real fear or has it changed at all? Has the public finally realized that vaccines are not the cause of autism or these other things it was suspected of being responsible for? Uh, it, it was never believed by scientists or the medical community that uh, either vaccines in general or the MMR, that's the mumps, measles, rubella vaccine, uh, caused autism. Or uh, there is one preservative that, that used to be used in a lot of vaccines or in some vaccines, thimerosal, which now is has been removed from the routine childhood vaccination schedule in the U.S. and, and many other countries. It still is in some fl flu vaccines, but, but not in, in others. So there were fears spread among certain segments of the population that vaccines were associated with autism. It's been shown not to be the case. In multiple studies now, we've shown that there is no correlation between autism and vaccines of any type or any ingredient that has been studied. 
And it, furthermore, the specific uh, MMR vaccine, mumps, measles, rubella, and the thimerosal ingredient have been shown not to be associated with uh, autism. And, you know, the more we learn about autism, the more we know that it's a genetic you know, developmental disease. It's not something that is caused by vaccines. But there is a subculture thriving online and their own, you know, again, their own social network communities who will continue to, to spread that belief, who essentially deny the science, distrust the institutions, and who claim against all evidence that uh, vaccines cause autism. And th their intent on, on spreading those really false, misleading, and dangerous fears. You know, uh, Steve, this is one of those cases where the lack of science literacy can have deadly consequences. It isn't just a curiosity. Yeah, absolutely. This is one of the cases where there's the most direct connection between scientific illiteracy and, you know, harm, uh, where people make poor decisions for themselves and their family based upon misinformation, based upon not understanding the science behind vaccines. For example, a lot of people in the anti-vaccine community will raise fears about ingredients that sound scary, but we know to be safe, or they'll say things like vaccines weaken the immune system when the, that's the exact opposite of the truth. Vaccines the way they work is to strengthen the immune system against the specific thing you're being vaccinated against. So understanding the science, how to interpret the literature, is definitely helpful uh, in a very direct way with this issue. Steve Novella, thank you so much for talking with me. Thanks, Seth. Always a pleasure. Stephen Novella is a clinical neurologist and director of the General Neurology at Yale University School of Medicine, and he's the host of the Skeptic's Guide to the Universe podcast. Well, Molly, you and I can both have parties, and then there'll be a pox on both our houses. Coming up, it's not just science literacy. Science itself is not considered worthy of national debate. Why this matters next. It's Skeptic Check on Big Picture Science. So science literacy, in the end, is a life and death issue. It comes down to the understanding and trusting of the scientific method. But at least in the United States, that trust has eroded. Yet many of the problems that this country confronts are science-related, from climate change to agriculture to health. These are big issues, and thinking we can muddle through with poor science literacy is like saying we can have a sustained democracy without a population that's able to read or write. It's that fundamental. Fool Me Twice, Fighting the Assault on Science in America is Sean Otto's book. He says that to understand the state of science in America today requires looking at the history of science in this country and the forces such as politics, religious fundamentalism, that have kept science from flourishing. Fundamentalists have been organizing for the last 40 years, more or less, and getting into the political process. At the same time, government funding of science has not rewarded scientists for public outreach. It's rewarded them, some would say quite appropriately, for doing science. And that has paid huge economic benefits to the country. But a component of that now is that scientists have, for the last two generations really, taken themselves out of the national dialogue. And so you have an increase in voices uh, from fundamentalists, a decrease in voices from scientists, and politicians are going to cater to the squeaky wheel. So it sounds like the fault is rather widespread. Well, it is. It's much wider than just that. At the same time that 
fundamentalists were organizing and scientists were sequestering themselves from the national conversation. Also, business interests, vested interests, perfected formulas for altering the public's perception of products and of issues. Additionally, there's been a real erosion in the United States national media and attitudes about truth. There's a movement that happened in reaction to science called postmodernism. In the 1960s, it grew up, and then it really came into full practice in the 1970s and 80s. And that had a large impact in education schools and journalism schools in particular. And what it taught was that there is no such thing as objective truth, that truth is a subjective experience. It's born out of your own perspective. And that science is just one of many ways of knowing about the world. This fit well with humanities departments that had been displaced by science, but it didn't serve us well, ultimately, the idea that there is no objective truth. Is this the fundament of uh, such arguments as, well, in the Bush administration, when it came to creationism, that we should teach the controversy, the, the, the kind of attitude that, look, uh, there are two sides to this issue, so we're just going to present all sides and let somebody else decide. Absolutely. And journalists have fallen for that hook, line, and sinker because even editorial instructions to reporters often say there is no objective truth. Your job is to present different sides of the story and realize that your own perspective has an influence on that. And that's all well and good, but it's just plain wrong. I lived in Europe for quite a while, Sean, and their attitude towards science, and when I say their attitude, I mean the attitude of the public, and for that matter, the government's, was considerably different than what we have here in America. So I'd like you to take me through America's attitudes about science. Let's just start with the, the very beginning, because there were some true scientists during the founding of America, Thomas Jefferson, Ben Franklin. Well, it's true. All right, so let's back it up and look at these ideas that Jefferson, in particular, drew on when drafting, just as one example, the Declaration of Independence. He wrote, uh, we hold these truths to be sacred and undeniable. And Jefferson was a scientist, and yet he was resorting to religious terminology there. And when he handed that draft to Benjamin Franklin, Franklin took it, and he saw that phrase, and he and you, you can find copies of this first draft, and he, he marked it out with several backslashes and wrote in self-evident instead of sacred and undeniable. And that was a really important distinction, and it could be argued that Franklin's edit there steered the United States away from theocracy and really created the idea of separation of church and state. Okay, so these guys were scientists, and they, they valued the kind of secular approach to the truth. But uh, what happened? I mean, by, you know, the 1820s or so, I don't know, was there a whole lot of science being done in the United States? There wasn't really. Most of the major scientific advances were happening in Europe. And partly that's because really the United States was a young country and it hadn't built up the academies that Europe had. But also, you know, de Tocqueville talked about this quite a lot when he came to visit the United States. He noticed that the idea of everyone being equal tends to create very industrious people that are focused on tinkering and engineering and getting things done. And they don't have as much time to contemplate the big issues. And so that's why, in his thinking anyway, science was continuing to advance and the major breakthroughs were happening in Europe while 
the United States was coming up with new technologies. So, okay, we had Edison, we had Tesla, we had these guys who were building stuff. It's great. Those became our heroes, but not science. But, but that changed by the beginning of the Second World War. How, how did it change? Well, it changed actually even a little bit before the Second World War with people like Edwin Hubble who were making major breakthroughs and, and showing that the universe was vastly larger than we had thought and that it was even expanding and that there were, it was something that probably indicated that there was a big bang. And the Pope even embraced this idea. And so science was this vast, exciting exploration of the natural world, and it made banner headlines in newspapers around the country. And then things changed during World War II when Vannevar Bush, who was the head of the Carnegie Institution, he came to lead the United States war effort for science. And science became an intellectual weapon to win the war for democracy. Okay, and, and it did that. And everybody thought science is great, at least during the war. I guess they thought that. But after the war, uh, you know, people were suddenly confronted with the consequences of some of the developments of that conflict, in particular the, the atomic bomb and then later the H-bomb. Kids in school were learning how to duck and cover. And, and you know, uh, in the early 1950s, I remember going to a whole bunch of sci-fi films where atomic bombs were causing giant mutated <laughs> critters to invade our cities. I mean, science looked like a bad deal. Uh, it, 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 it stayed a bad deal until Sputnik, I guess. Right. And Sputnik made a big difference for science in some ways because it fit that same rubric that science was a weapon. And it may not be always our friend, but we needed it. it and, uh, and we needed to beat those Russians. Okay. So after 1957, science is in again. There's money for science. But then this kind of eroded in the 70s, the 80s, the 90s. What was causing it? And that's what I talked about earlier. You know, in 57, really, finally, the National Science Foundation starts to get broad acceptance and funding after Sputnik. And a university tenure system grew up that didn't reward public outreach. In fact, there are strong disincentives in many ways to public outreach by scientists. Then at the same time, all the advances that we'd made by kind of taking a technological applied science approach to science, particularly in chemistry and, and things like DDT and other ways that we are able to make our own farming and other processes more efficient, began to backfire on us. And the public became suspicious with environmental disasters and started developing this meme of the dangers of the unseen effects of science. So where are we now then, Sean? I mean, suddenly science doesn't seem to be where it's at. Our heroes are others, inventors who can produce, say, the iPad and the cell phone. Those are our heroes. We seem more impressed with good old-fashioned Yankee ingenuity than with basic research. Well, there's an argument to say that we always have and that we've always had somewhat of a love-hate relationship with science. But part of that has come from the training of a generation, as I said, of journalists who don't understand science, and a generation of policymakers who largely came up through the humanities and ducked science classes in college as much as they could. Right now in Congress, there are just nine members of Congress, 
out of 535 that have a professional background in science. You, you write at the beginning of your book, you know, the quote from Thomas Jefferson, whenever the people are well-informed, they can be trusted with their own government. Uh, but it doesn't sound like the Congress can be trusted to be well-informed about science. We're approaching a moment in time when perhaps Jefferson's idea that whenever the people are well-informed, they can be trusted with their own government is reaching its ultimate test. Because science is advancing to the point where the average public don't have enough understanding to make wise policy decisions around scientific issues. So what happens when science advances to that point where it affects every aspect of our life and most of our major unsolved policy challenges are coming to revolve around it, and yet we don't have people with scientific backgrounds making policy decisions? Sean Otto, thank you so much for talking with me. Absolutely. It's been a pleasure to be here. Sean Otto is the author of Fool Me Twice, Fighting the Assault on Science in America. Well, science is not an elective course. Actually, it often is, but it shouldn't be. Indeed, I generally try to keep a lighthearted attitude here on the show, but of course, this matter of science literacy is serious. So I'll be serious for a few moments. If you're a regular listener to Big Picture Science, you're already interested in science. So you've heard about this problem to the point of boredom, or maybe worse, to the point of nausea. But here it is again. A study done about three years ago pegs American school kids between the ages of 11 and 14 as ranking about 10th in science competence among nations investigated. Not first, not second, not third, 10th. Well, you know that. But what's the fix? Well, better education, of course. But to get the best science teachers, heck, to get the best teachers of any subject, we need to do in the United States what they do in Europe. Value our teachers with more pay, yes, but also with prestige. If you're a fourth grade teacher in Europe, you're considered a member of the elite. So ask the next fourth grade teacher you encounter here in the U.S. whether they perceive themselves as having an elite job. The other thing we might do is consider what our guest Sean Otto is saying. How is it that our politicians not only know so little science, but seem to be proud of their ignorance? Where did that come from? Is science so shameful, so off-putting to the American electorate that you can actually get more votes by shunning it? You can call these people on the carpet and you know how to do that. Because, quite frankly, you have a dog in this fight. Thanks to the biological system that keeps this show going, Gary Niederhoff, Barbara Vance, and Jay Weiler. Also support from Rena Shulsky-David and Sammy David and the NASA Astrobiology Institute. Big Picture Science is produced at the SETI Institute. And thanks also to our listeners. You've been listening to Skeptic Check Dubiology. It's our monthly look at critical thinking, and you can find more Skeptic Check and Big Picture Science on iTunes and through the link on our website. And while you're online... Why not go to Facebook and become a fan of the program? You can leave your comments there as well. And hey, if you're a podcast listener and you prefer over-the-air radio, well, check out the listing on our website of radio stations that carry Big Picture Science. Skeptic Check is brought to you thanks to a generous grant from the Trimberger Family Foundation. At the Trimberger Family Foundation, we hold that skepticism is a lamp that lights the way to truth. You don't need to be a scientist to hold that lamp. Look for evidence. Keep on thinking. Trimberger.org.